Brewers fans have time today. Let's get into this. Let's spend some time arguing about Craig Council and bullpenning and feeling out a game and preserving a starting pitcher. We have time. This is where Wisconsin gathers to talk sports. Packers, Brewers, Badgers, Bucks. The Wisco Sports Show is on the air. Here's your host, Grant Bills. Growing up a Packer fan, there's something I realized over the years. Probably something you've realized too. You're in a better mood going to work on Monday after the Packers win. Right? And growing up, I'm pretty lucky to have lived through an era that only really saw Favre and Rodgers. There weren't a lot of losses. So most Mondays, I would go to school or I'd go to work next day and i feel pretty good. Kind of replaying in the back of my mind, replaying that Packers win. Maybe I watch the highlights, lunch the next day, just to give myself a little boost, right? There's a, there's a tangible effect that follows you the next day after a Packers win or a Packers loss. And I don't think that's the case with the Bucks. I don't think that's the case with the Brewers, at least not for every game, but for the first week of the season and for a win over your division rival, the Chicago Cubs, like last night, yeah, I'm feeling feel pretty good today. <laughs> I got up this morning. I was a taskmaster, did a little cleaning, made a nutritious breakfast. Okay, well, that's a lie. I made a breakfast, and I've just been getting after it today, and I've been in a good mood, and I think that's carried from the Brewers game last night. Freddie Peralta was awesome, and the offense had a big inning, and I don't know, that's carried with me to the next day. Not always the case with the Brewers. Not always the case with the Bucks or the Badgers. Always the case with the Packers, but it's pretty cool when that effect is felt with one of my other teams as well. It's the Wisco Sports Show, and my name is Grant Bills. Hope your week is coming along nicely, and you've had a good Tuesday so far. We're going to talk a lot of Brewers tonight, not as much as last night. By the end of the show last night, I'm like, I... I, I need to stop talking about baseball. Got to do something else. I have to go home and, and watch baseball, which is what I did last night. We are going to talk about the Brewers today. Awesome win last night. Very fun game. But I want to get into some other topics as well. We're going to talk a little bit about the Packers, a little bit about the Bucks, and a very special occasion tonight, something that doesn't happen very often. Two guests. Two. Count them up. Read them and weep. I put on my producer hat this morning. I told you I wasn't messing around. I woke up with a, with a purpose today. I woke up feeling dangerous. As Baker Mayfield said, David Gasper reviewing the brew. He's going to join us at 430. Talk Brewers. He's a Luis Urias guy as well. His boy had a big hit last night. So I expect, I hope that David Gasper is ready to take his victory lap at 430. But we'll also talk about some other topics. Freddie Peralta, Corbin Burns, a couple other things with the Brewers. And then at 530, Dan Casper, Sports Talk 105.1 in Eau Claire. Who does the morning show up there? Going to talk us uh, some Packers. Going to talk us some Packers. He's going to teach us a thing or two. Uh, some projections for the draft, maybe a couple of players he's excited about. I'm interested to get his overarching take on the offseason so far because there's a, there's a lot of different bullet points to talk about if you want, right? You could do the Rodgers contract thing. You could do the Jordan Love thing or the Kevin King thing. There's a lot that's happened, and I'm just kind of excited to give him the floor and say, hey, Dan, offseason, what gives? And I'm interested to see which direction he takes that conversation. So we'll talk with him coming up at 5.30. So uh, Sports Talk 105.1 listeners represent and show out for your man coming up at uh, coming up at 5.30. If you would like to be part of the show, send me a text, 608-796-2558. You can send me a tweet as well, at Wisco Grant. I tweeted out the show rundown, some details about what's coming up. You can follow me to be more connected with the show, at Wisco Grant. 
Let's start with the Brewers. We're not going to spend the whole two hours with the Brewers, but after a win like last night, I, I feel like we owe them the first 10, 15 minutes of the show, at least. They won 6-3. to three, And I, I think we can kind of continue a conversation today that we started yesterday. Yesterday, we talked about Travis Shaw. And I explained that I'm, I, I get joy watching him succeed. It puts a smile on my face. It makes me feel good inside. I feel happy when Travis Shaw plays well, which isn't the case for every Brewer. That's not the case for every Packer, every Badger. They're, they're my favorite team, but you know, not every single player that I've ever watched play on one of my teams is bringing me joy on a night-in, night-out basis. I, I, I'm genuinely happy for Travis Shaw. It feels good to watch him succeed. It's a good story. And last night's win, although Travis Shaw wasn't really a centerpiece for it, he took a walk, but he was 0 for 3 in his other at-bats. Last night's game, however, had me feeling happy, had me feeling good. Like watching Travis Shaw the last couple of games has made me feel. I just, last night had me loving baseball. Loving the Brewers. Loving that I can go home on a Monday night, turn on the radio in my bedroom, or pull up the stream on my TV, and enjoy a baseball game. And I didn't really feel that way a whole lot last year. Kind of a wacky season. Nothing about it was really normal, and I think that affected the players, the hitters, the managers. I think that affected everything, including us, the fans. Last night had me loving baseball. Freddie Peralta was fun to watch as always. The offense had a big inning. Big innings were always fun. It was a really fun game, and the Brewers ended up winning 6-3 to three to move to 6-4. and four. They got a little bit of a winning streak going on here. And it always feels good to beat the Cubs, especially at Wrigley North, which Cubs fans, they get so much joy out of saying that. And I, whatever, I, if that makes them happy, they can say it all they want. I'll, I'll take the win. I'll take the, the good performance over some, some rather cliche nickname for a stadium that's not even yours. Wrigley North. Okay, so... We're up in the series. Want to know, by the way. Let's start with the pitching. Let's start with Freddie Peralta. I said on yesterday's show that I think of him as must-watch TV, at least in the context of Wisconsin sports. And that can go both ways. That can be good or that can be bad. With Freddie Peralta, he is a ball of energy on the pitching mound. He's like Pikachu. Have you ever played Super Smash Brothers, Super Smash Bros? Uh, I played it on the Wii. You played a little bit on the N64, the GameCube as well. But, like, Pikachu would take this form. Sonic would do the same thing, where they would just turn into a ball of energy. And you, you really wouldn't see the arms or the legs or the ears. You would just kind of see a ball of energy, a ball of electricity. That's kind of what Freddie Peralta does on the mound. Every pitch, he just puts his heart and soul into it. It's 100% pedal to the metal all the time. And it can sometimes be exhausting to watch, honestly. It's very much like Jeremy Jeffress, but in the form of a starting pitcher. Every pitch is just laborious. It's 100%, no holding back, all the energy, all the heart and soul into every single pitch. And it looks exhausting, right? Like, Freddie Peralta does not look relaxed on the mound. He is coming after you. And last night, that got results. Uh, This season so far, his pitching style has gotten results. It's been entertaining to watch, and he's been productive. Last night, six innings, one earned run, which is a home run off Chris Bryant. Peralta said after the game, he got pretty mad giving up that home run, and he channeled that for the next couple of innings to retire the the next couple of batters he faced. Ten strikeouts, two walks. Two walks isn't too bad. I'll I'll take that for Freddie Peralta, who can sometimes be a little bit erratic. Not terribly erratic, but in comparison to Woodruff and Burns, you know, he'll he'll put a couple of guys on base via the, the walk. The thing that jumped out to me most was that of those ten strikeouts, so many of the Cubs' swings weren't close at all. Like, they're just up there guessing. They had no clue. Freddie Peralta forced 17 swings and misses last night through his six innings pitched. Javi Baez alone had two strikeouts where he had no idea. 
He's just guessing. He's up there at the plate swinging a sword is what it looked like. And one of those strikeouts, he lost his bat. His bat flew out to the pitcher's mound. And Freddie Peralta did a little did a little leap into the air. And it came nowhere close to hitting him, and it wasn't a big deal at all. But that just goes to show that when Freddie Peralta's on, hitters just, I mean, take your best guess. Try your luck. Just flail a bat and, and see what can happen. Because so many hitters last night just had no clue. The slider down and away or the fastball up and in. You just have hitters waving at it. 17 swings and misses last night. And he can really keep batters guessing. And that was the second time, uh, the second start of the year, and the second time that he faced the Cubs. So these hitters have already seen Freddie Peralta once. So a little bit of the element of surprise is gone. Any adjustments or changes that Peralta would have made over the offseason, the Cubs are now seeing it for a second time. And they looked as helpless and as confused in certain at-bats. Not every at-bat, but in a lot of them. They just, they didn't know what to expect. They're just throwing the bat out there. 17 swings and misses and 10 strikeouts through six innings. Now, I I love Freddie Peralta. I get really excited to watch him, probably more so than Burns or Woodruff. I keep saying he's must-watch TV, and I believe that. But Freddie Peralta still does remain, I think, on a tier slightly beneath Corbin Burns and Brandon Woodruff, which most pitchers do. Those two guys have been on another level for the last calendar year. Freddie Peralta could get there, I think. He has the stuff. He's got the fastball. He's got the slider. He has the, the, the makeup to get to that level. The next step for Freddie Peralta is efficiency, right? He's got to trim the fat. He's got to become more streamlined, exert less effort, walk fewer hitters, throw more first pitch strikes. He threw 93 pitches through six innings and not a lot of first pitch strikes. At one point last night, I don't know if it was the radio broadcast or the TV broadcast because I was going back and forth between Bob Uecker and Jeff Levering and then Brian Anderson and The Rock. At some point, one of the announcers on one of the platforms was pointing out the amount of first pitch strikes that were thrown between Azalea or Azaloy, however you, and I apologize to the Cubs starting pitcher. I had to do Matt Siyama yesterday. We got Luis Urias, whose name I'm trying to learn. I, it's okay. The, the Cubs starter was throwing more first pitch strikes than Freddie Peralta, and the commentators were drawing attention to it because Freddie would fall behind in counts, and then he'd have to battle back. And he has the stuff to do it, but just because you have the stuff to do it doesn't mean you want to be battling back all the time. So far this year, through two two outings, Freddie Peralta is throwing first pitch strikes on 43% of the at-bats. It's not a great number. That's a career low for Freddie Peralta. He was at 62% in 2019, and then 52% last year, and now he's dropped another 10%. 43% of the time, he's throwing first pitch strikes. That's a career low. And sure, it's only through two starts, small sample size. And sure, he's adding pitches, which no doubt complicates things, but he was missing with his fastball at times too, especially at the top of the strike zone, which to be fair to Freddie Peralta, the top of the strike zone wasn't really open for business with the home plate umpire last night. But something that jumped out to me, part of becoming more efficient, a more streamlined pitcher and a pitcher who has the ability to go deeper into ballgames, which is what Freddie Peralta is striving for. He wants to be more like Burns and more like Woodruff in that regard. Throwing first pitch strikes is a big part of that. And it's something that he hasn't done well to start the year, but he has the stuff to make up for it. Got to start throwing more first pitch strikes. That's something I want to discuss more with David Gasper coming up at 435. Now, the offense last night, I thought last night was significant in the scope of the 2021 Brewers season, offensively. Because I think last night, the Brewers bucked a little bit of a trend, didn't they? Their offense started really, really cold. They didn't score until the sixth inning. They only had one hit through the first five innings. And up until this point in the season, and I think last season as well, you know, through four or five innings, it would be easy for fans to say, ah, they don't don't have it tonight. They don't got it. 
right? It, it, feel, it felt like the Brewers' offense either had it or they didn't. Either they were jumping on the starting pitcher in the first and the second inning or they weren't scoring at all. It was hot or cold, everything or nothing. It was either or. And last night, the Brewers had one hit through five innings. And then in the sixth, the dam broke. And they got through, and they got to the Cubs starter, and then they got to the bullpen, and then they started bringing runs in one after another. They scored sixth in the sixth, all of their runs in one inning. And it was, oh, it's therapeutic, wasn't it? Didn't it feel good? (laughs) It felt like five innings of frustration finally coming to a head in the Brewers breaking through. And up until this point in the season, and during the 2020 season as well, it felt like that that really wasn't the case. You would know through two or three innings whether the Brewers' offense had it that night or not. It wasn't really something they adjusted midway through the game. It wasn't something they, they got going through the game. They either showed up and hit the ball or they didn't. And last night felt like a little bit of a buck of that trend, and it felt cathartic, felt very therapeutic. And in that sixth inning, Keston Hira had an RBI single. Jackie Bradley Jr. had an RBI triple, which had me on cloud nine. And... Most importantly, most interestingly, Luis Urias showed us a little something last night. Base hit here would be huge. At least tie the game or a long fly ball. Gets you a run. One out, come infield playing back. Looking for a double play ground ball. Andrew Chafin. Ready to work. Here it is. Swinging and a drive. Audio courtesy of the Brewers Radio Network. I play that whole clip, 43 seconds, rather than just the 10-second highlight at the end for a couple of reasons. I like the whole sequence because it sets the scene. Euchre saying, ah, just a fly ball to get a run across or one in the outfield, just kind of setting it up. And then the ball down the line, and, and you realize that Brewers are going to score more than one or two runs here. It's not a sack fly. We're, you know, we're clearing the bases. And I think you need the whole highlight to really experience that. But also to point out that Bob Euchre is 87. And he still sounds awesome. He still sounds so good. Not to make this all about Bob Euchre. Yesterday, we were pleading for Urias to show us something. Like, hey, this team traded for you when they didn't really have to trade for you from the Padres. They gave up Trent Grisham in the process. They traded away Orlando Arcia to give you the keys at, at shortstop. Show us something. It's about time. Put put something on the TV. Let us see something. Let us Let us see something from you, finally. We were pleading yesterday, you remember? And then last night it happened. And Craig Council, I think, kind of understood the significance of that play as well. Yeah, it was a huge hit. It was obviously a huge spot in the game. Base was loaded one out. And thought against the lefty, Luis had, you know, contact helps us there just to even tie the game. And he jumped on a first pitch slider and um, did something good with it. A really good piece of hitting. I'm, I'm about to unload all the cliches before we take a break here. Great piece of hitting. Good job by Luis Urias to slow down his swing and keep the barrel of the bat in the zone long enough to wait for that ball to get there and then just gently serving it down the left field line. Great piece of hitting. Patient piece of hitting. Not not trying to pull it, just put it in play. Great piece of hitting. I'm working on a list of all my baseball cliches, adding every game when I hear a, hear a new one from Brian Anderson and The Rock or from the radio broadcast. Finally saw something from Luis Urias. That's what I wanted to see. We were literally asking for that on the show yesterday, and then we got it last night in a huge spot. 
What a vote of confidence from Craig Council to send him out there in that moment, too. And good on Luis Urias, even though I'm an Orlando Arcia guy. Good on Urias for, for coming through and making the play of the game last night in that sixth run, sixth inning. I want to take a break. And before we get to David Gasper at 430, I want to point out something that happened in last night's game. It wasn't something that happened with the Brewers. It was something that happened with the Cubs, a decision that David Ross made. And I want to highlight it. I want to talk about it because it builds on a conversation that we had last week, a decision that David Ross made. We'll talk about it coming up next here on the Wisco Sports Show. This is the Wisco Sports Show with Grant Bills on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. Yeah, no doubt. It's I mean that second start against the team is, is never easy. Uh, but I thought if you saw Freddie change it up a little bit, it was probably a little more fastball heavy tonight, and that's that's what you got to do. And now that that's what he's able to do right now with with more weapons. Freddie Peralta doing something pretty impressive last night. Six innings, ten strikeouts, only one earned run, and it was a solo shot. And he did it pitching against the team for the second time already through ten games. That Cubs lineup had already seen him once. Still managed to have a pretty darn good outing. Craig Council speaking uh, to the impressive nature of, of that feat. It's the Wisco Sports Show, and my name is Grant Bills. On Twitter, at Wisco Grant, Lucas tweets in, says, Grant, slow my roll or keep me being excited. Answer the following with an either or. The Brewers have the best pitching staff in the Central, top three in the NL, and top five in the Majors. Have a good one, dude. Lucas, you have a good one as well. And uh, just guessing off your Twitter profile, you seem to be a, an Eau Claire Listener, uh, Chippewa Valley listener, I should say, speaking in uh, generalities. Your guy, Dan Casper, the champion of the Chippewa Valley, will join us at 530. So don't miss out on that. Your question about the Brewers pitching staff and how it ranks relative to the division and the league and, and baseball as a whole. It's an interesting question, and it's a question that we will no doubt discuss with David Gasper of Reviewing the Brew coming up in 10 minutes. By the way, David Gasper just posting this article at Reviewing the Brew within the last couple of minutes. The lead of the article The Milwaukee Brewers have the best starting rotation in baseball. That's not an opinion. It's a statistically certified fact, at least through the first 10 games of the season. And he's not wrong, right? The Brewers starting pitchers ERA so far, 199. That's through 54 innings pitched. The next closest team is the Marlins. They're over 230. So, I mean, right now, in a very small sample size, the Brewers have had the best, you know, trip and a half through the rotation, or I guess now we're into the the third time through the rotation. They've been fantastic. Now, by the end of the year, I I don't know. By the end of the month, I don't know. But right now, they're as good as anybody, and the statistics would say they're better than anybody. Appreciate the tweet, Lucas, at Wisco Grant. You can also text the show, 608-796-2558. Mitch and Madison says Chafin looks 50 years old. What? Because of the mustache? He looks like an old-timey player, doesn't he? He looks like Pete Vukovic when he was in Major League, like that vintage of of baseball player. And I'm glad you bring up uh, Chafin. Mitch, because that's actually what I want to talk about. I want to talk about David Ross and the way that he went from his starting pitcher, Azale, who had a pretty good outing last night until he didn't. I want to talk about how Ross went from the starter to the bullpen last night, because last Friday we got into the weeds about Council and how he was managing his starting pitching. Burns in that game was cruising on Thursday. Council pulled him after six and fans were upset, which I understand. You never want to pull a starter if they're if they're killing it. Um, but naturally, because Craig Council's my guy on that Friday, I tried to play devil's advocate and I tried to approach it from the other direction. And we had a nice back and forth and I thought we had a good conversation. Keeping in mind, of course, that being a baseball manager is all about forecasting and you're looking ahead to the next inning and the inning after that, 
right? You need to be proactive. You can't be reactionary. And I think that's what I tried to explain on Friday. Some of you had other arguments, and I appreciated those very much. I thought last Friday, talking about overmanaging, as some of you would say about Craig Council, I thought it was a good conversation. And if I may, I want to build on that conversation for about five more minutes with last night's game. And then we can let the topic die, or at least until one of you wants to bring it back up. Because the Cubs starter last night, Adbert Azale, 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 Lanolin, I don't know. He was cooking through five innings. He was killing it. Brewers looked like their offense went back to sleep. It looked like a different version of the offense than we had seen against the Cardinals the last few days. They saw 18 runs in two games. It looked like the sleeping version of the Brewers offense last night through five innings. Had one hit. And it looked like the Cubs starter was on his way to a seven-inning shutout performance. Wow, look at him go. Look at this kid. Wow, what a fine for Chicago. And they're up one nothing in the series, assumedly. That's what it looked like. And then David Ross, after that fifth inning, five innings of one hit ball, brings him back out for the sixth. And what happened? Brewers have a single. They have a walk and another single. And because Omar Narvaez was leading the way, he doesn't score on that single. He stays at third. So the bases are loaded with nobody out. Lorenzo Cain comes up and grounds to shortstop. Baez comes home. So now there's, there's one out. Base is loaded. And David Ross goes to his bullpen. Okay, it's time to get Azalea out of there. Let's go to the bullpen. But then Chafin gets shelled, right? Luis Urias gets the big hit. Jackie Bradley Jr. gets a triple. Keston Hira knocks one in. There's a wild pitch that brings in a run. It becomes a mess for the Cubs very, very quickly. And they end up giving up six runs in that inning. The only six runs they surrender during the game. But that proved to be enough as the Brewers won 6-3, to three, right? Ross pulled his starter, but when he did, you could argue that he pulled him too late. The bases are already loaded. The Brewers' offense is smelling blood in the water. They're feeling confident. They're playing with some swagger, and they're ready to strike. And, okay, you can bring in a reliever. You can bring in a fresh arm, but at that point, it was too late, and the Brewers' offense is bound and determined to score a couple of runs. Stands to reason for my point last week. Managers can't be reactionary. They have to be proactive, and they always have to be forecasting three batters into the future, six batters into the future, two innings into the future, always creating a roadmap and laying the road for the rest of the game before the team actually gets there. Because if you wait for a pitcher to have some struggles, have some issues, if you wait for a pitcher to encounter some some trip-ups and put some runners on base, it's too late. It's too late. The chances that you're going to give up runs now, way higher than if you would have started the inning with a pitcher who was warmed up, with a pitcher who is starting with a clean slate. That's the value of pulling a starter maybe two or three batters earlier than you'd like for the sake of getting the pitcher in that you want when you want them in at the start of a clean inning. And and I'm not arguing that the Cubs would have won last night if David Ross pulls Azalea after the fifth and goes to his pen. That's not what I'm arguing. But last night showed us an example of a manager that left the starter in for an extra inning to feel it out, to see how it went, and then made a change. But by the time they made the change, it was too late. And the Brewers ended up scoring six runs because of it. And to be fair to David Ross, he's got three relievers on the COVID list and his bullpen isn't that great in the first place. And this time of year is a tough time of year to use your bullpen because these managers are getting a feel. They're learning their pitching staff. So I'm not ripping David Ross like he made this boneheaded mistake that cost his team the game. But last night does show us that sometimes it's better to pull your starter maybe a batter or two earlier than you'd like for the sake of keeping things clean, for the sake of keeping things under control, and for the sake of planning ahead and looking into the next inning and the next inning and the next inning because that really is the nature of managing in Major League Baseball. You're not reacting to what you're seeing. You're trying to predict what's going to happen so you can be ahead of it, so you can bring in Brent Suter 
one batter before Freddie Peralta really runs out of gas. Or you can bring in Josh Hader really when you think that Drew Rasmussen's starting to lose his handle on the inning. And that's what Craig Council's been pretty good at. It didn't work out last week, mostly because the Brewers couldn't score runs. Just another example last night of, of how managing is tricky, and we'd like to think that it's easy and it's simple, but it's not. And it's about forecasting, not reacting. David Ross reacting last night, and his team got stung for six runs in one inning because of it. Just an example. Not trying to be combative, argumentative with anybody who thinks Craig Council is an overmanager. I will win you over by the end of the season. Craig will win you over. This has nothing to do with me. Craig will win you over. I should say that. Let's take a break, get connected with our friend David Gasper reviewing The Brew, who just put out an article within the last five minutes about the Brewers starting rotation. I'm going to read it over this commercial break. I will get David on the horn, and we will speak Brewers with him coming up next on the Wisco Sports Show. This is the Wisco Sports Show with Grant Bills on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. Wisco Sports Show, rolling on, day after a Brewers win. We're all happy to be alive, feeling good, great mood. A lot of juicy things to talk about. We're not doing all Brewers today. We will talk Packers, and we'll talk with Dan Casper. Sports Talk 105.1 coming up at 5.30, precisely, exactly one hour from now. Our next guest, our good friend, and our, our Brewers ringer on the Wisco Sports Show, that's David Gasper, just put out a piece within the last, I don't know, five minutes. Brewers, the value of a homegrown starting rotation. Uh, and David, you really didn't mess around. You just kind of got right into it at the beginning of, of your piece. Like, hey, the Brewers have the best starting rotation in baseball. Uh, and that's pretty cool because I, I really never thought I'd say that. that. That doesn't make sense for me. We've never had that. So that put a smile on my face when I saw it today. Yeah, it's something that uh, we haven't seen in uh, quite a while. And you just kind of look at the... Um, top rotations in baseball by ERA. The Brewers have the the best of the group with a 1.99 ERA in 10 games so far, uh, better than every other team in baseball. And it's just it's been an incredible run that they've been on. I believe it's up to six games now in a row of the Brewers starters giving up uh, one run or less mm-hmm. uh, in each of their uh, starts, which is something that I don't think the Brewers have seen in very long time i believe the franchise record is seven games so we'll see if uh, woodruff can keep that going tonight here against the cubs but if it plays out like it's supposed to right woodruff and burns have been amazing the cubs have been terrible well then maybe we get that streak for another day or two but baseball doesn't always work out like that so there's always the possibility that the cubs score like 10 runs tonight knock on wood that that doesn't happen but sometimes that's how baseball works i thought we could just start by like you just, like, let's just talk about your boy, Luis Urias. Yesterday's show, I was just pleading. I'm like, show us something, man. Like, come on, let me see something. And then last night he gave it to us. And a lot of people thought I'd be cynical about that. But no, I was thrilled for the young man. He finally showed us something. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, really kind of tough for him. He finished he finished over his last 13 on the road trip. Um, so he was really kind of pressing there, got the day off. Um, and then uh, Robertson was in there. So, uh, Vogelbach was slated to be up in that inning, and then that's when uh, the Cubs went to pitching change, and I saw Urias out there on deck instead of Vogelbach because they are two very different body types, and even <laughs> from out in the bleachers, I could tell that was not Dan Vogelbach. Uh, so I, I just I tweeted out there, I'm like, oh, it looks like Urias is going to pinch hit for Vogelbach, and immediately just a whole bunch of anger responses like, oh, no, this is terrible, yeah. we're screwed, this, this is such a bad decision. And then immediately, bases clearing double. 
and it was just the most satisfying thing to, to watch unfold. Everyone just immediately be trying to take it back, and mm-hmm. some people were still, like, sending them in because they hadn't seen it come through yet, and Oh man, the, so many people just immediately had to uh, apologize, and I called him out on it. You know, don't worry about that. I called him out for yeah. for hating on the Urias call, and, and he comes through. And, and yeah, that like you said, that's huge for him. Uh, so thrilled for Urias because he needs that uh, to to really get going at the play because he was struggling there. And the Brewers have given him as much of a confidence booster as they can by yeah. sending out Orlando Arcia. It's like, hey, it is fully your job at shortstop now. So for him to finally be able to, to see something like that drop and come up in a big moment uh, for the team to really start off that six-run rally, uh, that, that's incredible for him. It's going to be incredible for his confidence uh, going forward. And I mean, we should see him continue to break out and really hit because that, that's been his pedigree you know, going all throughout his professional career that this kid can hit. And, you know, we haven't seen it to big league level yet, but that that was a big confidence booster, a big help last night. Well, and one of the biggest moments of this Brewers season so far, right? Bases loaded down one mm-hmm. run and a chance to, to really jump out in front of this Cubs team and, and take command of a series early on at home. At, excuse me, at Wrigley North. We're not at home technically, as I was reminded <laughs> obnoxiously last night. Like, I was glad to finally see something. And it's good that he did it on the first pitch, too, because I had the tweet typed up. I was like, wow, Council's really forcing this with Urias and then... He gets the hit, and I'm like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to backspace that real quick. Backspace, I, will, backspace. Yep, I will tweet something else. So, no, it was exciting, and even me as an Orlando Arcia fan, I want to see him succeed, but I hadn't seen it up until now, so it was good to, to finally see that last night. Freddie Peralta was another good story last night, and I led mm-hmm. the show with this tonight, and I know we were, we were texting about this earlier today. Freddie Peralta has all the great stuff to be a pitcher. He's got the pitches. He's got the velocity. I love his energy on the mound. But he's got to refine his game a little bit, just a little bit, become a little bit more efficient, right? And I remember saying the same thing about Burns early on last season, and then he refined his game and became a beast down the stretch. How does Freddie Peralta take that next step, clean his game up a little bit, and become a a pitcher who not only has great stuff but can string together great performances of six, seven innings on a routine basis? Well, the key for him uh, to do that is, is throwing more strikes and not walking as many guys. I mean, so far this season, he's got a, a walks per nine over six, um, and he's been getting into a lot of deep counts with hitters. So his pitch count gets up there relatively quickly, and especially in a year like this where Craig Council is going to be having fairly limited pitch counts uh, on a lot of these starters. You know, that, that's something that, that's going to hurt Peralta and, and have him go shorter in games. He's been – Typically going around, um, he was at five innings, I believe, in his first outing. Then he was at six innings uh, yesterday. Got it a little bit better from uh, his first start. But, you know, it's all about throwing more strikes and and getting ahead of hitters. So first pitch strikes are going to be even more important. And that's something that he really hasn't been able to kind of get to as much this year. I believe he's only at about 43% or so on first pitch strikes. Meanwhile, a guy like Corbin Burns is at 71% on first pitch strikes. So, you know, if he can just get into the zone and, and throw some more strikes early on and, and just um, not walk as many guys, uh, he'll end up being just fine. Well, and it's not to say that Freddie Peralta can't slow it down and and pick his spots and really work the count. I, I think Corbin Burns against the Cardinals last week, although it was a game the Brewers lost, that first inning is a great example, right? The runner gets put on mm-hmm. to start the game with a triple – a ball that Yelich probably should catch. 
and then Burns has to battle, and he really worked that first inning. But then once he cleared that inning, he was his old efficient self, and he went six innings in, in only 86 pitches. So it's not to say that Freddie Peralta never can slow down and work a count when he needs to, but you want him to kind of hit cruise control and 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 whip through the second, third, fourth quickly, and, and sometimes he struggled to do that. David Gasper reviewing the brew. Would you rather talk about Devin Williams or Travis Shaw? Which one piques your interest more right now? Ooh, uh... You know, we'll, we'll go Travis Shaw. We'll go with the mayor. I'm a big mayor believer over here. Yeah, I said yesterday, and I want you to tell me if I'm right or wrong. He looks so relaxed at the plate, and he looks like his mm-hmm. approach has been simplified down to the bare bones. He's just trying to put the ball in play any way he can. And he's hit for power. He's put a couple in the gap, too. But a lot of these hits, he's just, you know, knocking them right over the head of an infielder or hitting to the opposite field. It looks to me like the struggles in 2019 and the struggles in 2020 really forced him to, to kind of go bare bones and strip down his approach, and he simplified things at the plate. Have you seen that as well, or, or do you have a different way that you're seeing kind of this Travis Shaw revival? Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. He certainly looked comfortable up there at the plate, and that's something that he didn't really have in 2019. He In 2019, he just looked completely lost up there. Like, he didn't know what was coming. He was afraid of what was coming. He was not comfortable in the box. He His swings were mostly defensive. Um, he, he didn't look confident up there at the plate. And this year, uh, it's it's completely flipped. He's looking more like his 2017, 2018 self. He's comfortable. He's hitting the ball to all parts of the field. He's um, putting in good, strong, solid swings. And, yeah, he, he's comfortable and he's confident up there at the plate. And it's it's paid off. I mean, he's hitting over 300, I think, already on the season. And, he, yeah, he's got a couple of home runs, or he's got a home run there, got the, the doubles. He's come up in some big spots. Yeah. So it, it's been great to see for, for Travis Shaw. And, yeah, it's the approach up there. It's looking comfortable at the plate. And, you know, it, it's just simplifying things mentally. And he's in a good spot right now mentally. And that just kind of helps him be in a good spot uh, statistically and in a good spot just producing for the team. Well, and I think he's been a defensive anchor at third base, too. And, and early on, with RC on the way out and now with the Wong injury and the uncertainty with Hira and Vogel back on, on the right side of the infield, I think having that defensive anchor at third base, a little unexpected. I don't know if we if we banked on that going into the season with Travis Shaw, but it's certainly been something that I think Craig Council has appreciated and he will appreciate as he tries to to configure this infield and, and get everybody in the right spot. Last question for you, Gasper, and it's kind of a a bigger picture question, and it relates to the piece you just dropped at Reviewing the Brew about how the Brewers are, are right now the best starting rotation in the league. ERA, it's not close. They're 199 through 54 innings. The next closest team is the Marlins at, at 231. The Brewers' starting rotation has been fantastic, and I'm not trying to poo-poo that. But I, I, I want to ask you about the state of baseball because teams are struggling to hit. They're striking out at a, a stupid rate, right? The, the Cubs, for example, have 49 hits mm-hmm. through their first 10 games. That's the lowest in any 10-game stretch for Chicago Cubs since 1901. And they're not alone. A lot of teams are really struggling to hit the ball. So not to poo-poo the Brewers starting rotation, but do you think that the Brewers' excellent pitchers combined with some of the offensive struggles right now in the league, do you think that plays a factor too? And and why do you think the big part of the league is struggling to hit so badly? I don't get it. Yeah, so when it comes to the rotation, um, yeah, they've been extremely dominant and Pitching has been ahead of hitting so far pretty much across baseball. Yeah. Um, and, and that's really kind of been um, the case pretty often early on in, in seasons. It was the case last year. Pitching was far ahead of hitting. 
Um, hitters didn't have uh, quite as much or, or quite as many swings that they could get, and um, they're, they're just not able to get as much information, I think, because there's still some stuff that's been closed down, um, the, the video rooms and, and whatever else. So hitters haven't had quite as much uh, that, that they can work with in games and, and prior to games. So that could be playing a factor. Um, you know, it could be some of the other protocols that, you know, maybe limit how, you know, close some guys are pregame and whatnot that has them getting less swings pregame. I'm not entirely sure. Sure. But, yeah, pitching across the board has really kind of been ahead of hitting. But, I mean, even going throughout uh, the rest of the season as the hitters start to warm up, you know, I still think this rotation is going to, to be either either the best or one of the best in baseball, and maybe you're not going to have as many one or two hit uh, games from Woodruff and Burns. It might be more three or four or five hit performances that they allow. There might be a few other ones sprinkled in there, but with the stuff that they have and and how they're able to locate, there's still not going to be that many big hits or, or hard hits against them. Sure. So even when those guys do um, heat up, it's probably only going to be a couple more hits here and there, and you know it's not going to be. Uh, you know, all of a sudden continually giving up 10 hits per outing. So, so it's, I, I think they'll still be fine. Yeah. yeah, so it's a combination of it's early, which always helps pitching, but combine that with the fact that the Brewers' starting pitchers are already really good, and that's why you get these gaudy numbers to start the year. Mm-hmm. I, I remember, Gasper, in your really quickly before I let you go, your five bold predictions before the season, you, you think the Brewers are going to get their first no-hitter in uh, franchise history since, what was it, 87? Is 87, yeah, 87. 34 years. You feeling pretty good about that right now? <laughs> that prediction? I'm, I'm, feel, I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah, I mean they, they've had a couple of a close calls already. I almost thought Burns was going to get it on the second game of the season. Um, so, uh, I, yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. Um, it's, it's looking good so far. I mean, Peralta only allowed I think two hits uh, yesterday in his start. So, you know, and, and one of them was uh, the little blooper to Keston where he kind of slipped and wasn't able to get the ball to first in time. So it really probably only should have been one hit against Peralta. So, you know, they've done a really good job at limiting hits. Uh, The the starting rotation has. And then, of course, with uh, the the defense, if you can get, you know, Colton Wong back out there. I mean, the outfield defense has been tremendous. So, you know, with the defense that they have and the arms that they have, I I really think that one is uh, extremely possible this year. So, you know, why not? I think it'll I think it'll happen. We just need the stars to align, great burn start, defense is all healthy and in place, and then like against the Pirates or something, and we need all the stars to align. I think it could happen. It's a long season. Yeah. Pirates are coming up uh, soon here on the schedule. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for it. And I'm excited for tonight's game, Brewers-Cubs uh, game two. Woodruff's on the mound, so that's, that's can't-miss TV. I'm excited to get home and watch, and I'm sure you're the same, Gasper. So thanks for your time, as always. Enjoy the game tonight. Yeah, thanks, Grant. I will. Take care, man. Yeah, take care. You as well. David Gasper, reviewing The Brew. Editor-in-chief, reviewing The Brew, and you should read his piece. Uh, Brewers, the value of a homegrown starting rotation. It's a pretty good overview of of their success so far and and what's gone into said success for Burns and Peralta and Woodruff and even Brett Anderson and Adrian Hauser, my boy. If David Gasper gets to stake his claim on Luis Urias, I'm staking my claim on Adrian Hauser being my boy. Dibs on him. And anybody who listened throughout throughout the offseason, you know, I'm I'm hopeful for Adrian Hauser. I think he can be a solid player for them this year. Let's take a break. I want to talk a little bit more about the Brewers and their matchup with the Cubs that continues tonight. Because the more I read about the Cubs, the
the more I, I, I don't understand this team, especially offensively. So we'll talk about that coming back. My name, Grant Bills. Get at me on Twitter, at Wisco Grant. More of the Wisco Sports Show after this. This is the Wisco Sports Show with Grant Bills on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. Wisco Sports Show rolling on. My name is Grant Bills. 608-796-2558 is the number if you'd like to text or call. Talking Brewers. You can also tweet at me if you'd like, at Wisco Grant. And by the way, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention David Gasper, our guest from Reviewing the Brew, on Twitter, at DGasper24. All of his work available at Reviewing the Brew. Just did a really good rundown about the starting rotation. Not only how good they've been this season, but the backstory about how this rotation came together and why it's not costing the Brewers very much money right now. So if you just want to bask in everything regarding this Brewers starting rotation, Gasper's got the piece for you. I've been doing my best to kind of pick and choose and read through it over commercial breaks. I'll have to sit down tonight with a glass of wine and a cigar and really, really soak it all in. I don't think I don't think I have any wine or a cigar in my house. And if there is wine, it's it's wine that I'm yeah no it's, it was probably six dollars anyways. Send me your thoughts on the Brewers if you'd like on the talk and text line or on Twitter. I, I want to say a couple things about the Cubs because we have a heck of a confluence of events going on yesterday, but also today and tomorrow, tomorrow afternoon when the Brewers wrap up the series against the Cubs. Strengths and weaknesses coming together. Brewers have two of the best starters in the league right now, Woodruff and Burns, set for the next two days to go against two of, well, two days against the worst offense in baseball or one of the worst offenses in baseball. Of course, it always depends on what metric you use. If you go total run scored, batting average, you know, batted balls, whatever. You can spin it a million different ways. The bottom line is the Cubs aren't scoring. And I'm not trying to hate on the Cubs. That's not my intention here. I was on with Ebo this morning in Madison, and I said, look, I, we have a lot of listeners who are Cubs fans. You know, the rivalry might be strong, and we might get antsy with each other at times, but I'm not trying to diss and insult and alienate a bunch of my listeners every day. So I'm not, I'm not trying to rip on the Cubs. I'm quite literally, in fact, reporting the facts. And the more that I read about some of these facts, they just blow me away. The Cubs have 49 hits in their first 10 games. That's the lowest for the Cubs in any 10-game stretch since 1901. 19th, previous century. Yeah. By the way, that was reported by Jordan Bastian. I saw it on Twitter last night. I'm sure it was circulating other places as well. Covers the Cubs for MLB.com. It's so frustrating to watch a team as a fan during a stretch like this. When your team can't hit, Cubs through the last 10 games averaging 4.9 hits a game. When you can't hit, everything else is a moot point. Nothing else matters. Starting pitching, eh, doesn't matter. You could have a starter go six innings, give up three runs. That's pretty good. But if your offense can't score, it doesn't matter, right? If you have a good defensive team, if you can't score, it, who cares? And the bullpen, who knows? You can't judge a good bullpen if your team can't score because you're always playing from behind. And the game is always out of hand by the seventh, eighth, ninth inning, as it was in the case of last night, Brewers-Cubs. And I watched David Ross's presser from last night. Well, Actually, I read it because I can't find it anywhere. The Cubs don't put it on their website, and Marquis doesn't tweet it out. Like, I looked everywhere. I couldn't find it. But I did read it, and he read very calmly, and he was pointing out the positives and expressing patience, which I'm all about because we've only played 10 games so far. But for the crowd that argues it's early and we need to be patient, 
there is a, an angle with which to push back on that. And I thought it was written really well by Patrick Mooney of The Athletic. And it's an excerpt that I read yesterday, and I'll read it again to you now. Quote, baseball is a game of timing, adjustments, and endurance. It's hard to slash the baseball operations budget, trade you Darvish, reshuffle the hitting coaches, bring back largely the same group of offensive personnel, and then tell everyone to relax when the team starts slow. I, that, that really resonated. That really stuck in my mind. Yes, 10 games in, there's lots of reasons to be patient and to wait for your team and wait, wait for things to heat up. But it's really difficult when the team wasn't good enough the previous year to make cuts across the board and then tell the fans the next season, oh, just be patient. Just take it easy. Take a pill. We'll come around. Well, I don't know. Now, there's no way that they keep their offensive woes at this level for the rest of the season. But this offense right now is broken. And I wouldn't bet money on them getting it going out of nowhere against Brandon Woodruff and Corbin Burns the next two days. But as I mentioned with Gasper, like you, it's baseball, right? So the, the Cubs could very well score 10 tonight and 10 tomorrow and Burns and Woody get, you know, melted off the mound. That could happen. Probably, you know, probably will happen because that's how baseball works. That's how the sport works. Nothing is predictable, right? Although every indicator would tell you the Brewers are set up like free beer for the next two nights. Woodruff tonight, uh, 640. First pitch, and then tomorrow, I believe, is 110. Either way, it's an afternoon game. I don't know if it's 115, 125, 110, somewhere in that neighborhood. So we will have a shortened Wisco Sports Show tomorrow night, hopefully reacting to a Brewers win. Or, you know, we have lots of Cubs fans that listen, too. You know, I don't mean to alienate you from this show. It's the same during football season. My hope is that while the Bears and the Vikings and the Cubs and the Twins aren't the focus of this show, I hope that I don't drive away fans of those teams by being snarky. At least... Not more than every once in a while. Sometimes you got to hit these teams with snark. The Vikings or the Bears or the Cubs. Sometimes you, you just got to you gotta nudge a rival. You got to be mean to a rival. That's fine. Not all the time, though. So I'm hoping that over the next few days, Cubs and Brewers fans can come together, use this show as a point of unity, and we can discuss the rest of the series, a game tonight and a game tomorrow. God, I can't wait to watch Brandon Woodruff. I want to continue to talk about the Brewers, but we will get into the NBA and into the Packers as well. Dan Casper from Sports Talk 105.1 will join us at 5.30. More of the Wisco Sports Show after this. show rolling on talked a lot of baseball so far a lot of brewers so if you hate brewers you hate baseball kind of un-american don't you think this is your time the time is now talk a little bit about hoops a little basketball and then we're gonna be joined by dan casper sports talk 105.1 do a little packers coming up in about 10 minutes parting shots on the brewers we got a couple uh jamie ken's barber Jamie, I love you. We You got a shout-out yesterday for your Avi Garcia take, by the way, because that take paid off. It just took another, what, another year and a half? You were right all along. It just took a little time for you to be right about Avi Garcia. Uh, first of all, Jamie says, is there an app to listen to your show? There absolutely is. Um, no overarching app, but you can download the WKTY app, I believe, but I could be wrong. There is an app for Sports Talk 105.1. You can also listen live at WKTYsports.com, WAYYradio.com, which is Eau Claire, and MadCitySportsZone.com, which is our station in Madison as well. If we ever reach the point where we have, like, one overarching stream in a central location, 
which I think is in the works before too long, then I will pass that information along as well. Yuke is a legit Hall of Famer, a pro's pro. I could not agree more. I can't believe he's this good at his job at age 87. If I can be alive at age 87, that's an accomplishment in and of itself, let alone calling full nine-inning baseball games, you know, 100 times a year. I know he's not doing them all, but he's still doing a, a good time. Binksy says, is Williams in a sl- uh, sophomore slump or just rusty? I think probably both. Uh, second time through the majors. He, he kind of exploded onto the stage last year. We knew, we knew that that season wasn't going to happen again. So I think some natural regression was in order. A long time with hitters and hitting coaches getting a look at him and making adjustments. And also, yeah, I think he's rusty and, and he got a late start to the year. So I think it's a combination of a lot of things. Hopefully he regains some sort of, of high-level form. I think getting him in the game last night, an opportunity to get him in there and get him some work, I thought that was I thought it was a great set of circumstances that kind of naturally occurred, but I thought it was a sharp choice by counsel to get him in there and, and seize that opportunity. Appreciate the text from you both. Twitter as well, at Wisco Grant. want to talk basketball for just a couple of minutes before Dan jumps aboard. I was about to get into bed last night at like 10.15. I, I killed it last night. I got home. I w- was watching the Brewers. I, I cleaned up a couple of things. Like, I, I, I had my life in order. Let's just say that last night. And I got into bed at 10.15. And I made the mistake before going to sleep. Set my alarm. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to look at Twitter one last time. And I see everybody losing their mind because Steph Curry is going to score 70. And I was like, oh, God, it's a Steph Curry game. I got to watch that. So I, gra- so I grab my laptop, bring it into bed with me because at this point I'm in bed. I'm not going back out to our living room. I'm not turning on the TV. So I'm watching Warriors Nuggets in bed. And S- Steph Curry was great. And I, his third quarter was unreal. And he didn't have to do a whole lot in the fourth quarter because the Warriors run away with it. The Nuggets melted down. We got bad Michael Porter Jr. And then to make matters worse... Jamal Murray blew out his knee with about a minute left in the game, which sucks. This NBA season sucks. And I was lamenting about the Bucs yesterday because the Bucs don't really seem like they know what they're doing in regards to resting players and, and trying to get seating. But then again, I don't really blame the Bucs because I don't know what NBA teams are supposed to do. You see so many injuries and you have teams that are trying to rest guys, but also trying to get seating and you got players taking personal time off and it's just, it's a big mess. Right, and this NBA season is the worst. As an NBA diehard, I can say that confidently. Right, but it's not the worst for the reasons that most people think. Everybody's arguing that it's all super teams. No, no, it's not. It's not all super teams. The Bucks were formed organically. The Sixers were formed very organically. The Nets are a super team of sorts. They made trades and acquisitions. Like, it takes a lot of planning and lining up to get two high-priced free agents, which they did, and then they gave up a ton to trade for James Harden. And I give the Nets more credit than most people because I think Steve Nash has done an unbelievable job this season using the regular season as an experiment to prepare for the postseason. Miami was formed really organically. In the West, the Lakers, you know how I feel about them, and screw the Clippers. The entire country should hate the Clippers except for Clippers fans because that, yes, I agree about that. But the Nuggets were built organically, and the Suns are exciting. It's not all super teams. And the idea that there's no parity is just crap. Right, The idea that only one or two teams have a chance to win it, that's just a lie. That's a lazy take. Because you have the Suns, who are amazing. Nobody's paying attention to them. The Jazz, who are amazing. Nobody cares. Right, The Bucks and the Sixers, both of which would be an interesting story. Charlotte's really, really good. And Atlanta is surging. It's not just L.A. and New York. 
Although I think by the end of the year, those two teams will be the favorites, which I guess is is what people are complaining about. I was arguing with a coworker yesterday. I think the NBA could expand tomorrow, and there'd be plenty of talent to support that expansion. Now, you want to get in exciting markets where players actually want to play, which is why Seattle is interesting. Vegas is interesting. If you put a team in Kansas City, okay, we'll have another conversation. But I think the league could expand tomorrow. There's plenty of talent, and I think that would go to discourage teams like the Nets where you have Harden and Kyrie and Katie all on the same team, one of those guys or, or two could go somewhere else and do their own thing, maybe if there were more options, right? This season sucks, and it's because of the compressed schedule. Uh, who was it? Tim Reynolds, uh, who covers the NBA for the Associated Press, YAP, tweeted this out on April 4th, so that would have been not this previous weekend, but the weekend before. Friday and Saturday, 18 games, Four games decided by 44 points or more, 22.6 point average win margin, and there was only one game of those 18 that were decided by five points or less. Everybody's hurt, everybody's getting blown out, and all these teams are playing way too many games, which is why the players who aren't injured are resting. Anthony Davis and Kevin Durant have sat out a combined 59 games. The Nets' big three have only appeared in seven games together, which is a little bit misleading because they added Harden late and Kyrie Irving takes games off for no reason, so I don't really care about that. But LeBron, AD, KD, Steph Curry, James Harden, Kawhi Leonard, and Embiid have missed 107 combined games. That's not even including Giannis. And LaMelo Ball got hurt, which sucks. And today I was reminded of an interview I did with Dave DeFore back on February 2nd, and he was making this point. This point might be more accurate now than it was at the beginning of February. This season is so weird that nothing feels like it's together, right? Just no, there's no story. There, uh, from night to night, the cast of characters are different. The, just, you, you, the lineup volatility mm-hmm. because of the health and safety protocols, because of the shortened season, because of how many players are coming back from injuries. I mean, think about how many guys wound up missing so much time. I mean, Kevin Durant, you know, <laughs> missed so much time because of his having an injury the previous season. Mm-hmm. And so I think when you look at, the myriad of, of reasons why this season is odd, it just feels a bit surreal. And it doesn't help that we're all kind of going through this, you know, weird time in life as it is. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I, I just I was just expressing kind of uh, my take on how hard it has been to create analysis for this season and what's happening. Because it is weird like this to me is the asterisk season not in the bubble the bubble was like ideal conditions the bubble is what the league should be shooting for like that's the kind of basketball that they should want to display every single night when you see these guys how fresh they were uh you know without the travel and and how just amped the energy was from those guys so i I think that if anything the asterisk is on this season yeah. And it applies to more than just the championship. I think the season itself is just so weird. I, I really don't know if I have any big takeaways right now. That cut deep. When he said the asterisk season wasn't last season, it's this season. And in February, I was like, ah, well, it might feel like that now, but in a couple weeks, we'll get over it. No, I, I actually think that argument is more is more valid now, right, two months later. That was on February 2nd, well over two months later now. I think it's more valid now. Look at all the time that all these players have missed. Because at that time, LeBron hadn't got hurt. Embiid hadn't gotten hurt. Giannis hadn't been missing time. LaMelo Ball was still okay and an exciting young rookie. Like, it's a bummer. The season doesn't suck because it's all super teams. There's no parity. The season sucks because everyone is hurt because the season is compressed in such a small window of time because of last year, the bubble and the way things wrapped up. 
the season sucks, but make sure we, we all agree why and we don't use kind of tired, lazy arguments that really aren't based in fact. Let's take a break. Talk to a man that's always based in fact, Dan Casper, Sports Talk 105.1. It's going to school us on the Packers a little bit. Coming up next, more of the Wisco Sports Show after this. This is the Wisco Sports Show with Grant Bills on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. AM. Wisco Sports Show. My name is Grant Bills on Twitter at Wisco Grant. Richie tweets in, says, yes, the Sports Talk 105.1 app. Dan Casper in the morning, then Dan Patrick, and then the Wisco Sports Show. It's the way to go. I know we had a text about a way to stream the show. Yeah, the 105.1 app will do it. You can download the WKTY app. I don't think the Zone has an app, which is something I got to get on Ebo about, but you can listen live at madcitysportszone.com uh, if you're a listener on the Zone in Madison. Our next guest from Eau Claire on Sports Talk 105.1, morning show host, that's Dan Casper. Dan, it's been a little bit. It's good to hear your voice. How is life in the uh, the beautiful Chippewa Valley? Life's good right now, man. little snow going on right now, but uh, hey, we, we kind of uh, got spoiled with the weather a little yeah, bit earlier. So We did. I don't have a... Man, I hope it's not snowing down here. I don't have a window in the studio, which has become a thing that callers troll me about, at least the ones that remember. So I, I hope I don't wrap up the show and go outside to a bunch of snow. But I, I do miss being <laughs> up around Eau Claire and being up around Menominee. I'm going to go see my parents pretty darn soon, so I'll be cruising through, and I'm looking forward to it. Dan, I, well, I, your, uh, your high school's got a new football coach taken from Eau Claire over here. So yeah. you got Mike Sims going over there. I want to ask you about that, actually. I'm glad that you brought that up. What do, what do we think about that? Is that like a is that an anti like loyalty thing? Is that a bad look? Like it's a good job, but is there some animosity about that? How does that land in Eau Claire? No, I think everybody's. Good. I mean, that's that's where Mike graduated high school from. Yeah. He, you know, he played under Joe Labuda in Menominee. So when that opening came up, when when Coach Labuda retired, Mike was obviously a, a popular name around it. So. Mostly it's been just like awesome, congrats, going back home yeah. sort of thing. It will be interesting, though, when it's regular season, it's Menominee versus Eau Claire Memorial. So maybe adds a little bit to a rivalry there, potentially. But, no, it's been all good over here. That's, that's what I was wondering. The next time that Coach Sins returns to Carson Park with the Menominee football team, I wonder if that's – we got to get that on televised or we gotta we got to make that right. into an event. I was, I was thinking about that. I did want to ask you about a couple Packers things and then a draft thing or two. First, I, I just kind of want to give you the floor because the last couple of months, there's been a lot of drama with Rodgers. I think a lot of it is manufactured. You might disagree. I don't know. Like between his contract and his future plans and the Packers' future plans. Right now through the midway point in April, looking back since the NFC Championship game, what do you think matters? The drama? What do you think is noise? And what's your take on the Packers' offseason in relation to their quarterback? What's your take so far? Oh, I guess I'm kind of surprised that nobody else noticed that, uh, you know, when Rodgers is on Twitter a lot lately, he doesn't like anything that the Packers tweet about him. You know, he likes everything about California Bears. I'm kidding. Yeah, I'm surprised <laughs> nobody kind of re- re- mentioned that or anything like that. That, well, he doesn't like anything that the Packers tweet at him, but he likes everything else out there. So there's that obviously means he's demanding a trade. Um, you know, it's hard not to kind of get into it a little bit when you hear headlines or, or articles or reports, whatever you want to call them. It's hard not to, to not read them or, or kind of get into them. I just think it's a no, no win situation on, on both sides, like either do or die. Uh, you know, I'll go back to the Mark Murphy comment he made 
a couple of weeks ago, or I should say, lack of comment when he kept saying, you know, no comment, talking about Aaron Rodgers. Yeah. It, it didn't sound good. It obviously didn't sound good. But at the same time, I guess the more you think about it, you know, if he goes out there and says, yeah, we want Rodgers, we want him for a long time, it wouldn't be that surprising if somebody flipped it on Rodgers and said, well, your team wants you now, Aaron, so why aren't you working on getting a con? Everybody can flip mm. it. You, you know, everybody can flip it. So I try to remind myself it's, you know what, we don't know what's true. There's only a few people that know what's true at this point. So I take it with a grain of salt uh, at, at this point. Let, let's just let's just see it all out in the field. So, But I, I don't buy a whole lot into it uh, in this point because I think social media likes to uh, – likes to spread a lot of stuff, especially leading up to the draft, too, with all the smoke screens. It's not something that I've gotten into a lot, like, should he restructure? Should they do this? I I don't know. If if they want to, they will. If they don't, they won't. Like, I I, I don't really like spending time on this show talking about it, but you made an interesting point, a point that I didn't consider, about Mark Murphy saying no comment. Because at the time, I thought, like, well, you know they're going to ask you about that. Why don't you have some sort of statement? Just say that he's your quarterback, and if you change your mind later, Mm -hmm. okay, fine, it happens all the time. But I didn't think of the effect that could then shift the onus to Rodgers, and then the media turns on Rodgers. Well, the Packers say they want you. Why don't you? That's something I didn't think about. I think that's an interesting angle. We, we are getting close to the draft, as you mentioned, so the media just is always cooking. There's a lot of misinformation, and I, I know you do mock drafts. It's not that I don't do mock mm-hmm. drafts. I'm not probably into them as much as, as most people. I, I think the Packers need a corner, D-line, O-line. I don't think they need a wide receiver, but I think it would be fun. What potential options in that first round of pick 29, what players get you really excited when you're looking at, at between the line or receiver or corner, whatever? Which which players get you grinning? Which players get you excited? Uh, I think, you know, when you look at it, first, you know, pick 29 for a team that was in the NFC Championship. Uh, if you look at a lot of the mock drafts or, or the experts, pick, experts picks out there, you see a bunch of different options. I don't know if I've seen anybody agree on anything uh, with the Packers selection at 29. I, you know, when it comes to that, I, day two is my favorite when I look at those second and, and third rounders. And who knows, maybe Goody, you know, in his other drafts, he's traded up in the first round. He's made moves. Maybe this is one where he moves back a few spots to, to gain another extra second round pick. I'm not sure, but I've seen, you know, the few names that, that I, off the top of my head that I've seen kind of mocked to Green Bay that, that could go at 29, or maybe they're there for that second round pick. Uh, I'm looking at Rondale Moore from Purdue. I know you just said wide receiver. Um, but, you know, to, the the interesting thing to me is that Tyler Irvin and Tavon Austin were so critical to the offense, not in, in terms of big numbers, but they were the guys that employed the jet sweeps, the motions. They helped out in special teams. Those two guys aren't on the team right now. They don't have anybody that can do that. So is that Goody's idea of like, okay, maybe I'll go into the draft and address that? Maybe we look at Cordero Patterson after the draft. Rondell Moore can do that. He's a smaller type of wide receiver, but you know he bench or he squats six hundred pounds too for for a little guy. So I'll I'll take that any day of the week. Um, you know some other Jamon Jamon Davis, linebacker from Kentucky, inside linebacker. He's I think he's like six foot four. He's a dude. A lot of people like him, and they see him kind of, kind of going up in the. Uh, Later first round, perhaps early second round. Nick Bolton from Missouri is smaller, but he's tough as nails. Um, and, you know, if they go up the offensive tackle route, you got Alex Leatherwood from uh, Alabama. you got Sam Cosme from uh, Texas. Uh, Alex is a little bit more versatility. you got Cosme from Texas, who's more of that typical left tackle build. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they go corner, you know, Goody said the other day, this draft is deep in corners, and 
and tackles. So maybe that's his way of saying, you know what, if it's deep, can address it in the day two, day three, or something like that. But <laughs> yeah. if he goes in the first round, you got Eric Stokes from Georgia. Uh, then you've got uh, Aaron Robinson, who I actually really like, too, from UCF. He uh, used to play at Bama, but then transferred. And if Joe Barry's real or, you know, he wants that corner that could play outside, inside, Stokes and Robinson fit that. And then got to give a little love to Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, guy from Iowa, Davion Nixon, mm-hmm. defensive tackle, because we know our – we know our Packers like to look at Iowa Iowa players quite a bit, so he'd be an interesting one possibly on day three. Dan Casper, day two, day three. yeah, yeah, day two. I think that is the first round can be a letdown, like especially if you're picking at 29. Like the Packers end up taking someone you've never heard of, or they trade out, and there's so much suspense all night long, and then just nothing. Whereas day two and day three, mm-hmm. you get a little bit more substance. So I hear what you're saying. I, I like that you brought up Rondell Moore because I. I did a segment on him a couple of weeks ago, just as an example, because I think the national media, not to sound like like the world is out to get the small-town Green Bay Packers, but the national media think Green Bay needs weapons, they need wide receivers, Rodgers need help. And I, I think that's true to an extent, but I think they need a wide receiver in a specific way. They need that Irvin or that Tavon Austin type player. And I think Rondell Moore fits that so well because Lafleur has made do with Tyler Irvin or Tavon Austin. What kind of effect do you think if they got Rondell Moore? someone who could play that same position, but who's much more athletic and, and has much higher ceiling. What kind of impact do you think that could have on a Packers offense that was already so good last season? I think he's an instant impact player on, on day one. And I think, you know, for anybody saying, and I was one of them, I wanted them to draft a wide receiver last year in the draft and they didn't. Well, you look at this year and if there's anybody saying, well, why would they do one this year if they didn't do it last year and look at their offense, Devontae, one year left, MVS, one year left, those receivers' contracts are coming up. So, you know, there's maybe that sort of thinking. Maybe we got to get some more wide receivers on the team be, and, and have a little bit more security there. But in terms of more, you got the special teams factor. He can plug in and play a punt returner there. Yeah. If you watch his film, yes, he doesn't have a lot of, you know, uh, yards per catch, but get the ball in his hands and the guy makes plays. We've seen this Packers offense under Matt LaFleur for a couple of years now. They're not afraid to call dink and dunk if you want to do it. The short pass routes underneath the screens. Go watch the Ohio State film. We're more, I mean, when Ohio, when Purdue was up against them, just bulldozing over guys. He's, he's a little guy, but he is tough as nails, and he's hard to bring down. And when you watch that film, especially the Ohio State one, you're a Packers fan. You're like, I can see this dude lining up and playing in the slot and making plays like that. He just, to me, he is a perfect fit within this Lafleur offense. <sighs> You're preaching to the choir. I, I, It seems too perfect. Like, it seems too exciting. There, there doesn't seem like a way that Brian Gutekinds is going to take a player that exciting and flashy. Like, that's just not what we that's not what we know as, as Packers fans. We'll see. I think there's a lot of options at 29, and it depends on how the board goes and, and who falls where. Dan Casper, uh, Morning Show 105.1, or Sports Talk 105.1, excuse me, in Eau Claire. Last question for you. And I, I, I think everybody covers the Packers a little bit differently. I think that's why sports radio is cool as everybody comes at it from a slightly different angle. I was trying to think of, of how to close our conversation, what I should ask you last. And I was like, well, wait, I, I want you to kind of guide the last couple of minutes here. Like, what do you think is the biggest Packers story that like no one is talking about? Like, it seems obvious to you. You're talking about it on your show, but you don't hear it anywhere else. Does anything come to mind? Um, you know, maybe that, that's a good question, actually. And I, I guess I haven't really thought of it uh, in, in that sense. But, 
you know, when you're looking at it, they're bringing the band back together. They haven't really done anything outside instead of besides a long snapper at, at this point. <laughs> that's right. So uh, to me, uh, to me, maybe that's that's their way of saying we believe this is a team that can that can win a Super Bowl, and we almost did it last year outside of a few plays. Um, I'm a little surprised about you know maybe them not going out and and getting a, a cheap veteran. Uh, cheap veteran corner or another player like that. Uh, I thought them able to re- or the Packers able to restructure Preston Smith was was huge because everybody just assumed that he was going to be gone. You know what I mean? And, and, and moving on from him and clearing cap space. No, he, they were able to to work that deal done. Um, you know, and Dean Lowry's still there. I think everybody's kind of thought he was going to be a cap lug, uh, cap casualty as well. It just seems like Green Bay's sticking with the old band from from last year. And I'm not saying that's a negative. But you know, you, you look at some teams, and if they don't get get across that threshold for the last two years, like the Packers were in the NFC Championship game, they might go a little bit of a different direction. But Green Bay is sticking with their guns, and including Kevin King. You know, and I know there's, hey, I was one of those that that wasn't high on the Kevin King signing. I'm still not that high on it, especially if he is the number two corner. But I guess another way to look at it too is, you know, for all the talk about Kevin King. Maybe we should be looking at Josh Jackson and why he hasn't developed into a top corner since he was sure. a second round pick right after Jair Alexander too. So there's there's other issues there, but they they need another corner. They they just they got to have another one there because talk about his play or whatever have you about Kevin King, the accountability factor for me is the big thing with him because whoever that guy is going to be, whoever that number two guy is going to be, you're going to get targeted all day. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to throw at 23 Jair Alexander. And you got to be able to perform. So, pressure is going to be on him this year. Well, I don't. I don't love the Kevin King signing either. And it's funny. And I brought this up when it happened because Packers fans were very prepared for the idea of Kevin King coming back. Like I don't think anyone. I don't think anyone was surprised that they brought him back. We expected one year deal, prove it type money. Five million mm-hmm. bucks is not prove it money to me, especially when you see like what AJ Boye got or Desmond King. It was, it's very odd to me. Um, and I and I do like yeah. your point about how the Packers have kind of just held steady. Teams don't get across that threshold, and they start making huge moves, like the Saints trading a first to get Marcus Davenport or bringing in Emmanuel Sanders. Yeah. Packers really don't do it that way, and that's an interesting angle that that I hadn't considered. Dan, I appreciate you, and I know you're you're furiously getting ready for the draft. Maybe you will inspire me to do my own mock draft and really dig in and sure. and look at all these picks. I, I appreciate the time, man. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Anytime, Grant. Dan Casper, Sports Talk 1051 in Eau Claire. We appreciate him. The voice of the Chippewa Valley. Not just Eau Claire, but the surrounding towns as well. Menominee, Altoona. I'm a big Altoona guy. Go Rails. Uh, Joseph texts in. You know what, Joseph? Hey, I appreciate your text. And I see it, and I hear you, and I'm going to save it for after the break. Does that sound okay? We're going to take a break, and then I will get to your text, and we'll wrap things up. Coming up next here on the Wisco Sports Show.